Amen. Why don't you take a seat? Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. Wasn't it great to see those families this morning? That was so wonderful. And um, uh, my name's Jamie, by the way, if you're a visitor here, and I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. And it's great to be with you, and hi to our online community as well. Um, as is often the case, I have a few things to uh, share with you before we jump uh, straight into the passage this morning. Although after worship like that, I just want to jump straight into the passage, but that's okay. Um, uh, there's something I'd like to share with you. Some of you uh, may know this, and um, probably many of you don't know this, but uh, this year is actually the 75th anniversary of this church. Um, we've been around 75 years. That's pretty good, hey? Yeah. And so we've been talking uh, as pastors and with our board a little bit about, um, you know, how would it be, you know, what would be a good way to sort of mark that? And so uh, the first uh, public worship service was held in the autumn, 75 years ago. And so uh, in the autumn, we'll, we'll, we'll do a few uh, different things we're working on that we'd like uh, to celebrate together. Um, but one of them that we'd like to do actually requires a little bit of uh, pre-work and a little bit of fundraising. And so I want to share it with you uh, this morning. This is something that uh, the board just passed, and they've asked me to share with you, uh, the congregation, something we think would be a really great way to mark our 75th. And um, it means having a, a, a second, but better, crack at um, lighting that cross out there. And we, you may remember that a number of years ago, we, we actually did relight the cross, and actually we, we raised a bit of money, we actually painted the structure, and we, we changed the light bulbs out, and we relit it, but it didn't last very long, uh, the technology is old, um, the ballasts were, were sort of shot, and, and so um, it, it, didn't, it wasn't a successful thing that we hoped it would be. So anyway, uh, we just felt it would be a really, really good thing to do for this uh, celebration, and it includes a, a fair bit of work, so it actually includes some refabrication and, and sort of uh, retooling for LED lights, which have a, a significant warranty. Uh, and so um, we're working with a company uh, in Surrey that actually does this outdoor lighting kind of thing. They've actually backlit a cross uh, that's, that's at a church in Surrey, and so they, they, they know what they're doing. They're going to help us uh, with that. And so uh, that's what we'd like to do, and it involves quite a, quite a bit of work, as I said, and actually, uh, it is quite expensive. We have to have one of these really, really tall boom lifts on the property for a number of days, and it is so expensive. I was shocked at how expensive it is, but anyway, that's what it is. And so uh, we, to be able to do this, we do need to raise $25,000 to do it, which is a lot of money, but as we discussed it as staff and discussed it with our board, we just all felt, but it's, it's worth it. Uh, because that cross has been part of the skyline of, of Abbotsford for a long, long time. And we've heard many stories over the years of people who have been blessed and quite impacted by seeing that lit up in the night sky, the cross. Uh, and so we just think it's worth it, and we think it's the right thing to do, and what a great thing to do for our 75th anniversary. So we're going to do something uh, around that in the, in the autumn about lighting up, but of course we've got to actually do the work in the, in the summer, and that means we've got to raise some money sort of in the spring. So uh, I'm just presenting that to you. Uh, we'd love to try and uh, raise that money if you're able to give. If you believe in the project and you want to help us out, we'd uh, love to uh, receive that. Um, you can just write that on your envelope. Uh, there's actually, if you give online, there's a, a drop-down menu you can uh, call cross-lighting that you can uh, give straight there as well. So, so that's the plan. 
Uh, second thing I just wanted to say is next Sunday, join me for a baptism class. If you have any interest in baptism, you just want to talk about it, you want to know what the Alliance believes about baptism and how we do it, and I'm going to present some information for you and, and just hang out for uh, the hour before the service next uh, week, so at 9 a.m., uh, if you would like to come, you're not committing to being baptized, but you're just coming to, uh, to find out some information, uh, meet me out here in the lobby at 9 o'clock. I'll be there till about 9.05, uh, and then whoever's there will kind of go off probably to the staff lunchroom or something and just hang out for an hour or so, bring your questions. I'd love to interact with you. So uh, that's next uh, Sunday. And the third piece that I need to share with you and would like to pray about is, um, is we've, we've lost a dear brother um, in our church. It just struck me this morning as we celebrated um, uh, three baby dedications there that isn't that life, new life and death, joy and hope and loss, and it's all mixed in together, and God is with us in all of it. And so um, it's with sadness that I announce our Runji passed away, and so we're going to miss Al. Uh, Al, if you don't know who Al was, Al was actually a lead pastor here for a few years uh, back in the 90s, and so we're going to miss Al, and I'd like us just to bow our heads and pray for Lee, uh, his wife, and family. I don't have any confirmed details on the funeral just yet. Um, Pastor Jack is still working with the family on getting details. We'll let you know when we can, but if you bow your heads with me. Father, we want to thank you for the life of Al Runji and the, the wonderful ministry that, that Al and Lee had for many, many years. Uh, the countless numbers of sermons uh, that Al preached and the number of people that he uh, impacted is profound. And we are just so thankful for him and thankful that he was part of this congregation. And uh, we're thankful for the legacy he leaves behind. And we're so happy for him that he's with you. And um, what a joy it must be for him to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And so we just are thankful for that. And we want to ask, oh God, that you'd be with Lee, who I'm sure is feeling the sting of loss as she has lost her, her life partner. And uh, we just ask that you just envelop her and the rest of the family with your love and your grace, your kindness, your closeness during this time. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. I uh, briefly read a news story this week about the, um, the James Webb Telescope. And maybe you've heard of that. Uh, the James Webb Telescope was uh, launched into space uh, not too long ago to replace the aging Hubble Telescope uh, that has taken so many sort of iconic pictures of space and, and helped us to learn so much over, over the years. And, and the, the point of launching this telescope was because uh, it is so much more technologically superior, and it's so much newer that the hope is in replacing the Hubble, and there's, there's a different way in which it kind of uh, is used, um, is, the hope is that it can peer deeper into space and, and come up with uh, you know, clearer images and help us to understand the universe a little bit more. And so uh, I was reading this uh, article, and the article was actually saying, it hasn't been up there that long, um, but already it has discovered six uh, solar systems that we didn't know were there. And uh, the interesting thing about it was it said that, however, it's created more questions for scientists than it's provided answers, because technically, in what we understand in terms of that science and what we understand in, in terms of the universe, those six um, solar systems, given where they are and the size of them, they shouldn't actually theoretically exist, which is kind of fascinating. So we'll see what happens uh, with that. Uh, but the point is, 
is that a telescope uh, can discover things that have always been there, but we've just never been able to see them before. And all of a sudden, we can see them to a certain degree. It's similar to a microscope. When you peer into a microscope, and you look at something that is maybe like a, a boring, uninteresting little dot, and all of a sudden you see it under the microscope and you realize it is alive with design and, and, and pattern and interest, and you realize this thing that looks to your naked eye to be perfectly round is not perfectly round at all. And again, you're, you're able to see a, a level of detail about something that's always been like that, but we've just never been able to see it before. And today's passage from the book of Mark is about something that is being revealed to the disciples, or three of them at least, that is very real, but had been hidden from them. And they and everybody else cannot ordinarily see what they see. It's the story of the transfiguration. For a moment, the veil that separates earth from the heavenlies is drawn back, and the three disciples are able to peer into it and see something that is real and is, is there, but they've just never been able to see it before. They get to peer beyond this veil, but then all of a sudden, in an instant, it, it returns and the vision fades. And more and more people in the West, I think, which is kind of interesting, who since the Enlightenment have been fed the doctrine that reality is only things that we can see, touch, feel, and taste, or things that can be explained by the laws of physics and so on, are beginning to open up to the idea that there's more than meets the eye, but actually there's layers and dimensions to reality that we can't ordinarily see but is real. I think that's interesting in the West how we're beginning to see and understand some of those things. So let's read the passage. Mark chapter 9, uh, 2 to 13, coming up on the screen for you. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say because they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them not to tell anyone about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. And then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah is indeed coming first to restore all things. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he's supposed to go through all kinds of sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written about him. God's word to us this morning. Uh, you may recall, uh, if you were with us last Sunday, that when I read the passage last Sunday, which was that incredible passage about the two-stage healing of the man in, in Bethsaida, and then the, uh, the wonderful declaration that Jesus was Messiah from Peter up in Caesarea Philippi, and then this kind of take up your cross and follow me piece, that, that passage, that at the end of that, I actually slopped over into chapter 9, verse 1, and I read it, but I didn't comment on it. Here's what it said. I'm going to read it to you again. 
He said to them, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And then he goes into verse 2, which is what we just read. After six days, they went up the mountain. There has been various attempts to try and understand what on earth Jesus was talking about there, and there's different opinions and different ideas, but I actually think it's a reference to the transfiguration. I think that's the best way to understand it. This was the three of them. There are some standing here. This is the three of them who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God coming in power. And there they were at the mountain, seeing power. And I just think it makes best sense of the, of the context. Six days later means that they went up the mountain on the seventh day, which is interesting from a creation perspective. And the number seven is really important uh, number in Scripture. But also, it's important from Exodus 24. We're just going to read 15 and 16. Then Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud, a voice out of the cloud. There are actually numerous parallels between uh, this moment in, in Moses' life and the transfiguration story, and I think we're supposed to see the connection here. If you are a student of the Bible or, or, or just know the Bible even, even a bit, uh, you probably know that the Exodus story is one of those stories that lies in the background of so much of the New Testament. There is so much uh, going on here. There, there is massive um, illusions and quotes and references back to the Exodus, and the Exodus event is a huge prefiguring of what God will do in Jesus. It helps us understand the cross. God saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and brought them up out of there and eventually into the promised land. And so Jesus provides a way for us out of our slavery to sin and death and will ultimately bring us to the great promised land of the new heavens and the new earth still to come. I mean, it's, it, there's so much Exodus parallel with the gospel. So there's a ton going on here. And this part of Exodus 24 and the reference to you know, going up a mountain and the cloud enveloping them, and the six days, and numerous others, is important for us to understand that the transfiguration, in part, is a massive signpost to the identity of Jesus and to the mission of Jesus. It's huge. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses himself says, uh, there will be a prophet who will, be, who will rise from among my people. Listen to him, he says. A long time before this event, Moses said that. Here is the prophet from among your people who's been raised up, Jesus doing the things Moses had done, Jesus taking up the broken down story of Israel in himself, and a voice comes from heaven, and we'll get to that in a little bit later, and it says, this is my son, listen to him. It's a huge connection to Moses and to what Moses said and to what Moses anticipated, to what Moses prophesied. This is a massive, massive point, pointer rather, to Jesus and his, his mission and his identity. Jesus moving the God story, redemptive history, forward. Not God saying, oh, well, Israel failed. Oh, well, I'll just have to go and send my son then, plan B. No, 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 always, always Jesus was going to take up that story and it was all going to be fulfilled in him. It all points to him. 
His life points back to it, and he moves it forward in himself. When Jesus and the three get up the mountain, we're told that Jesus was transfigured before them. And that word is only actually used a few times in the New Testament. But what it means is, is to change in terms of its, its outward appearance. It isn't a change of ident- uh, sort of um, fundamental nature, but it's a change to appearance and countenance and the outward state of something, a radical transformation of how something looks. It's almost as though his look, his appearance, actually begins to reflect more his identity. And we're told that his clothes became so white and so dazzling that no bleach on earth could ever bleach it that white. That's got all the hallmarks of of an eyewitness recollection, doesn't it? Like Matthew and Luke both have the transfiguration story, but neither one of them say that. But then neither Matthew nor Luke were up the mountain. It sounds a little bit like Peter was saying, oh, Mark, you've got to get this. Like the, the white was so white, like no one could even bleach it that way. Like it's got this, this hallmark of an eyewitness recollection. It's probably uh, from Peter. And then what we're seeing then is this glorified Jesus here. Not dissimilar to the glorified Jesus we see after the resurrection, but we're seeing a glorified kind of Jesus, in terms of, certainly in terms of his, his outward appearance, and we're seeing two Old Testament saints, long dead, long gone, long out of the story. We're seeing the curtain torn back for a moment, and we're getting to peer through it, or the disciples are getting to peer uh, through it. Something that isn't ordinarily... ordinarily Um, apparent to the naked human eye, a little bit like looking through a huge telescope or looking through a microscope. Suddenly, it's revealed to them. Now, we have to be careful here, church family, because it would be easy for us to, to, to move to this idea that, oh, well, I guess what the disciples were finally seeing, they know he's human, but now finally they're seeing he's also God, that this was a, a demonstration of the divinity of Jesus. That would be a mistake, I think. Because although it's true, that's not what the disciples were concluding. The doctrine of the divinity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity and things like that, those things got worked out later. For the disciples, I don't think that's what they were thinking at all. And in fact, we know the disciples are always confused about stuff. So I don't think they're like, oh, right, great. Okay, now I figure it out. Jesus is also divine. It means he has two natures. He's both human and divine. I guess he's probably the second person of the divine trinity. Like, they're not doing that. They're not working that out. That gets worked out a long time uh, later, actually, because they don't have the New Testament. And so it's unrealistic that they would think that uh, in the moment And it's like there's layers of this text. And I think for you and I, as modern readers of Mark, we might look back at this transfiguration story and we might read that into the text, the divinity of Jesus, and we'd be right, because he is. But I just don't think that's what the disciples are doing here. Properly understood to the original audience, this is simply a further revelation and signpost for the disciples, for the early church, that yes, Jesus is the promised one. He's the one that they were all pointing to. He's who Moses was pointing to. 
He's the one we've been waiting for. It's like this progressive revelation that they're receiving, but they haven't landed here yet, where we have after 2,000 years of orthodox theology and, and, and reflection on the scriptures and so on. Verse 6 says that they didn't really know what to say because they were terrified. And it probably means that we should understand Peter's offer of building three tents uh, as him just babbling and blurting out whatever comes, uh, comes to mind. And that you kind of pick that up as I, as I read it like that. And I mean, people talk about the Feast of Tabernacles and Zechariah's prophecy and different things that it could also mean, and maybe it does, but I think it's just a little bit more human than that, certainly in the moment. I think it communicates that Peter didn't want the experience to end. Let's stay here a while. I'll build shelters. I'll honor you. Why don't we just hang out? Let's camp. Stay here. I think Peter just didn't want this mountaintop experience to end. And then a cloud envelops them. And this is very Moses, Exodus-esque. Moses going up a mountain, the cloud covering the mountain. Moses' face shining in the Exodus story. And then for a second time, we get it first at the baptism. We get this voice that booms out. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And it's different to what he said at the baptism. The listen to him thing, as I said earlier, connects with that prophet from among your people. And again, it's a heavenly affirmation and a stamp of approval on the person and the mission of Jesus. Jesus being singled out against the backdrop of two of the most famous guys in Israel's history. Moses and Elijah, he's being actually lifted up above them as the one they should now listen to. And some have seen in Moses and Elijah the the representation of the law and the prophets. Moses representing the Old Testament law. Elijah, the office of prophet. And you know that Jesus says when, when he talks about the great commandment, he says, all of the law and prophets hang off of this. And, but the thing is, Elijah and Moses don't actually speak in the story. They're speaking to Jesus, but they don't speak in a way that we know what they're saying. They don't address the disciples. And then when, when um, the disciples turn around, they're gone. And it's only Jesus there. And I think it's a profound moment and statement for us that Jesus has far surpassed them. All the law and the prophets and all of that salvation history now rests on the Son of God. It all gives way to him, similar to John the Baptist, who said, I must now decrease and he must increase. Moses and Elijah, we've got to fade out of this story now. The law and the prophets fade out of the story because it always pointed to him. We were just... Shadows and forerunners. It's all about the sun. It's a very Christ-centric passage. It's all about Jesus. On the way down the mountain, then they have a little bit of a discussion, and the disciples um, quote a scribal understanding that Elijah is going to need to come first. And they say, "How come? How come the scribes say that Elijah must?" come first. And, and Jesus sort of agrees with them at the beginning. He says, yeah, they, they, Elijah must come first to restore all things, absolutely. But then he adds a twist to it, an unexpected part of it. The Elijah belief comes out of the book of Malachi, where Malachi talks about how he's going to come, Elijah's going to come, and he's going to turn the hearts of the parents back to the children, the children to the parents, before the coming of the great day of the Lord. So there was this belief that that the coming back of Elijah was going to usher in the end. 
And so uh, here they are saying, so, so if we just saw Elijah on this mountain and, and, we, and we believe that Elijah's supposed to come back, or the scribes do, then aren't we here at the end? So, so why does the Son of Man need to suffer? Why do you keep saying that, Jesus? Like he's, Elijah's already here. The end is here. You don't need to suffer. Why do you, need to, why do you keep saying that? And Jesus adds this twist. And the twist of the story is this, that Elijah has actually already come. You think it's this Elijah here on the mountain. He's actually already come, and he's referring to John the Baptist. And we know that because Mark, in the beginning of his gospel, uh, describes John the Baptist as wearing the clothes just like Elijah. He looks just like him. And if we're still unsure if he really means that, we only have to open up the book of Matthew. Matthew says it. He actually says it in the Transfiguration story, that Malachi's Elijah is John the Baptist. And so he's already come. And the shocking part of the twist is that Elijah, John the Baptist, suffered as well. And we know that John the Baptist was thrown into prison and he was beheaded because of a grudge. Elijah, the messianic forerunner who went before the Messiah in declaring the way of the Lord and calling on uh, people to be baptized and repent and so on, also went before the Messiah in suffering himself. And the implication then is that is why the Son of Man also has to suffer. Part of what we're learning through the transfiguration and then the discussion of Elijah is that glory is not actually incompatible with suffering. John Calvin once said, the cross is the theater of glory. Jesus in John's, uh, or in John's gospel rather, John talks about when the Son of Man is lifted up on the cross, he will draw all people to himself with arms you know, outstretched. He'll draw people to himself, the plan of God, the purpose of God, the mission of God, the glory of God. The cross is the glory of God. So you disciples are going to need to get this, is what he's saying. You're so steeped in your belief about a victorious Messiah, and I will be. But you can't then wrap your head around my continual teaching that I'm going to have to be handed over and killed. I'm have to, I have to go to my death. So let me say it again to you. Elijah has come, but it wasn't all triumphalism, was it? When Elijah came, they, they did to him what they pleased, and so they will with me. So he's a forerunner to the Messiah in this way also. The Son of Man will be handed over and put to death. Church family, we, um, like the disciples, have our own mountaintop experiences, don't we, from uh, time to time, and maybe if, if we had time, we could sort of hear testimonies and stories of, uh, of everybody uh, in the room. And we all have our mountaintop uh, moments, and, um, and uh, I'm convinced, as if you've spent any time listening to me preach over the years, you'll know that I'm pretty convinced that there are more such experiences available to us if only we'd seek the Lord more. We have a tendency to become settled and comfortable and apathetic in our faith, especially in the West. But we do have mountaintop times and moments, and maybe you've experienced that. Maybe for you it was a missions trip where you came out of your comfort zone and you had to depend on God, and God did something profound, and it was this mountaintop experience. Or maybe you're at a conference like our Soul Care conference that we had and it was a mountaintop moment. Or maybe you once had a dream that God gave you or a vision that God gave you. Maybe you were healed physically. Maybe you prayed for somebody and they were healed physically. 
Maybe um, you had an answer to prayer that was very, very specific, some of a kind of miracle. There's lots of different ways in which we get to see the glory of the Lord that shines so bright, no bleach could ever bleach clothing and achieve that. And the deep desire is for us to build shelters, to maintain that mountaintop experience. And that's exactly what I think Peter was doing. But Moses and Elijah disappeared. Jesus stopped shining. They journeyed back down the mountaintop into the valley. And the next passage that we're going to see next week is that there's a situation that's going to jolt them right out of that mountaintop experience and right back into the reality of struggle and demonic activity and unbelief. The valley. For Mark's first century readers, they were likely suffering under Nero's persecution. This story would have been an encouragement to them that though they're in the valley of suffering themselves, that Jesus the Messiah is for them. See the glory that awaits you. May that strengthen you in the midst of your struggle. So for us, two things today. Number one, seek the mountaintop. Just because we live in the valley, it doesn't mean we shouldn't seek the mountaintop. Absolutely, we should. We should pray big, audacious prayers, not weak, little anemic prayers that sometimes we pray. We should pray big ones. We should live in expectation. We should pray for each other's healing. We should ask the Lord to do things that only he can do. We should worship with abandon and press into the presence of God like never before. We should seek the gifts of the Spirit. We should devour the Scriptures. We should wake up from our apathy if we're apathetic and awaken to the kingdom that is breaking into the world and not be lulled into a belief that what the disciples peered into beyond that veil is something we'll get to see one day when we die. And now really life is just about living a good life and it's about really behavior modification. No wonder people think Christianity is boring and irrelevant. How did we ever boil the gospel of Jesus down to that? It's just about being good. Oh, how boring. I don't want to be part of that. We need to live big, live bold, seek him with everything. So seek the mountaintop, but number two, understand that as wonderful as the mountaintop is, and as much as we should seek more of it, remember that's not where we live, though. We don't live there. We don't take up shelter there, not yet. We live in the valley. We live in the midst of brokenness and fallenness. We live in a, a world where demonic forces sometimes have a field day. We live in a world of war and famine and family dysfunction and poor mental health and emotional struggles and loss and oppression. For goodness sakes, we live in a world where somebody can knock on the wrong door and get shot for it. Like, what kind of a world do we live in? It's just madness. We live in a world where we can be full of faith one day and lack it the next. We feel like we're on top of the world because we've, we've achieved something for Jesus and the next day we just like fail, like we're a brand new believer, like, oh man. That's okay, that's human. The mountaintop experiences remind us that not all is as it appears though in the valley. If we could pull back the curtain and we could see the reality beyond there, it will far outlast this valley and is more real. The mountaintop, you see, is not there just to pull us out of the world, but it's to sustain us in it. And we have a mission. 
to love the people we share this world with who don't share our hope. And the good news is this. The good news is that when the disciples trudged down off that mountain and down into the valley, they didn't leave Jesus behind. He didn't stay up there saying, I've given you this wonderful experience, now off you go, good luck. No, 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 he stopped shining and he walked with them and he trudged back down into that valley with them by their side and he walked right into the cauldron of Jerusalem and suffered himself. And so when we suffer and when we're living in the valley, He's right here with us. And when we're in the mountaintop, he's right there with us too. Nothing can escape the presence of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing.